Hey, it's Ron. I'm really excited for you to hear today's episode. We'll dive into how the reapportionment process could impact the balance of power in the U.S. House of Representatives. But before we get started, I wanted to let you know that the Census Bureau actually released their reapportionment numbers after we recorded this episode. So throughout it, we talk about potential and hypothetical changes, but the final numbers are now available. Just so you have a frame of reference, Texas picked up two seats in the House and two electoral votes. Florida, Colorado, Montana, North Carolina, and Oregon all picked up a seat and one electoral vote. In California, Illinois, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia all lost a seat and one electoral vote. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. In our first Drawing Democracy episode, we talked briefly about the way the 435 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives are divided or apportioned between the 50 states. Now that we're right around the corner from the U.S. Census releasing their official population data, which will dictate the next reapportionment and redistricting process this year, I want to look at what that's going to mean for the balance of power in D.C. My guest today is probably the best person to break this down for us, Dave Wasserman. Dave is the House editor for the Cook Political Report and an NBC News contributor. He's one of the nation's top election forecasters. His election commentary has been cited in Politico, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The Economist, and Real Clear Politics, just to name a few. In 2019, Dave was named a Pritzker Fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, where he led a seminar entitled Mapping Our Future, Forecasting Elections, and Redistricting in 2021. Dave, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to nerding out. <laughs> this, is our, this is our nerd series. So we did an overview uh, already in this series of how the apportionment process works uh, with our listeners. That was back on February 25th. So I think it's okay to just dive right in to which states we expect to gain and lose seats based on the preliminary estimate data we're seeing now. Yeah, so Texas and Florida are usually the big winners, and that's going to be true this time around again. Uh, We're looking at potentially Texas gaining three seats going up from 36 to 39, Florida gaining two seats going up from 27 to 29. Uh, We're looking at five other states that could pick up a seat each, Arizona, Colorado, Montana, North Carolina, and Oregon. And then on the negative side of the ledger, there's this familiar frost belt decline. Uh, uh, We're looking at Illinois, Michigan, Minnesota, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and West Virginia losing a seat each. But uh, Alabama and California are also on the cusp of losing a seat. This is really where we're in suspense heading into the reapportionment release. Uh, Whether Alabama uh, or California will lose a seat, whether New York will lose a second seat, the margins here could be quite close. And uh, every time some state ends up on the short end of the stick, they typically sue over the census's approach. And this time around, it could be more controversial than normal because the census mm. has employed new tabulation methods, including differential privacy, to 
try and address some of the unique challenges with conducting a census uh, this this go round. So we'll see whether those lawsuits get anywhere. But that's basically the the, the uh, shift that we're expecting. And if you were to allocate those ten seats, shift those those ten seats from the losers to the winners. Joe Biden would have won the electoral college with four fewer votes than he than he did if you were to hold the rehold the 2020 election under uh, the new apportionment counts. So it gives you uh, just a an idea of the small boost that reapportionment alone offers to Republicans. So we've talked about already how all of the district boundaries ultimately end up in litigation. Most of them end up in litigation after the fact, but we haven't talked at all about. Uh, litigation over the methodology that the census uses to count. And that's something I'm not familiar with. Can you expand a little bit on that? In 2000, Utah narrowly missed out on gaining a fourth district. And they sued on the grounds that the census didn't properly account for Mormon missionaries uh, who uh, who were abroad. They lost that suit. And subsequently, you know, Utah picked up a fourth district because of its high growth in 2010. This time around, the census is not only having to resort to more estimation methods than normal because of the lower response rate due to the the pandemic. It's it's kind of had to make uh, some guesses of how many people are living in households uh, that that didn't respond. But it's also employing a, a controversial new data privacy approach called differential privacy, which essentially means that in order to safeguard the census data from being mined for personal information, it's swapping some of the demographic characteristics of people living in one census block with uh, people living in census blocks nearby. Republicans are up in arms. I'm talking to a number of Republican strategists who believe that this means that uh, we won't have an accurate or exact count. Uh, The truth is that we never have had an exact count of how many people were living in certain blocks on the census date. But there are going to be more questions about this than normal. That sounds like it could have a big impact on the majority-minority districts and how those get drawn. Is that, do you think so? Well, you know, Democrats have long alleged an undercount of minority communities in the census. And it's possible that now that the Biden administration has taken over, that there will be less of an undercount than there would have been if the Trump administration were still in charge. But it's really hard to say because we'll never know. So uh, obviously, even after the seats are reapportioned, states are going to need to go through their redistricting processes. But Democrats currently control the House with such a narrow six-vote majority. You mentioned the electoral math uh, at the presidential level. How do you think reapportionment might impact the balance of power in the House? And I know all this depends on how the district boundaries shake out, but is it, is it possible even to estimate that right now? Well, Republicans need to pick up only five seats to regain the House majority. And Texas and Florida are likely to gain a total of five seats. Those are both states that Republicans control. Now, you can look at some of the other states as well. And Rhode Island and West Virginia probably cancel each other out. If Rhode Island does lose a second district, it's guaranteed to be a Democrat. If West Virginia loses a third district, uh, then that's guaranteed to be a Republican because those delegations are all blue and red 
respectively. Uh, but it's a closer call as to how redistricting shakes out in some of the other states that would gain or lose. And keep in mind that even in states that don't gain or lose, there are going to be fraught redistricting battles. So this is what I want to dig into. As we start to think about the redistricting process, this you know the number of seats held by members of each party in each state doesn't really align with the actual voters or their or their partisan preferences. So for example, Arizona is really pretty proportional if you think about it uh, in terms of proportionality. So in 2018 Gallup had 40 41% Democrats or lean Democrats, 41% uh, lean Republican. Or Republican, and they've got nine seats, five are Democrats, four Republicans. But you go to Kentucky, and the same year, Gallup has 42% Dem, 45% Republican. Kentucky has six seats, only one is a Democrat, and five are Republicans. So when we think about how this go-round is going to shake out and the, and the, and the proportionality differences uh, in each state's what would we expect? I know this is purely hypothetical and it's a fantasy because it's never going to shake out this way, but just so that we have a, our listeners sort of have a benchmark for if proportionality were to be, say, inserted into the hierarchy of statutes that these, that the map drawers have to follow in some way, what would the house look like? What would the composition look like? Well, theoretically, it would look pretty close to the country's breakdown as a whole, but what I always say to to people is, if you want proportionality, don't expect it through districting. Look, mm. if if you were to take the state of Massachusetts and say, well, you know, let's have proportional partisan representation in Massachusetts, you'd say, well, Democrats should get six seats and Republicans could should get three seats. Well, guess what? It's pretty much impossible to draw even one Republican seat in Massachusetts because. Democrats dominate most regions of the state. Uh, you know, you might be able to draw one that very narrowly, uh, you know, would elect a Republican in a good year. But you know, and it, you can take Republican states where the opposite is true. And so, the question of what's fair, people of different persuasions come up with a lot of different answers to that question, which is a big obstacle to reform. And getting anything done, you know, my take, having watched this for a couple decades, is that the most successful reforms have been ones that forbid taking partisanship into account at all. They've typically led to the most competition. They've led to the most uh, potential for turnover. And you know what California did in 2010 took a lot of heat. It took a lot of effort. But in the end, I, I do think it led to robust competition or a much more robust competition than it otherwise would have seen. Do you think that a competitiveness standard would also help with competition or do you think that would also get in the way? It could, but keep in mind that competitiveness can be a moving target. And right. you know, this is where I think things start going down rabbit holes that are unhelpful to the overall cause of reforming gerrymandering is everyone's coming up with their favored standard. For a while, the efficiency gap was in fashion, uh, but it was not embraced by the Supreme Court, which ruled that you can't bring partisan gerrymandering claims in federal court. And there are flaws with each metric uh, that's used to evaluate how gerrymandered uh, a, a map is. And let's say that you've got a competitiveness standard 
that's based on presidential election results. Well, that can differ a lot from party registration, which is often a lagging indicator. Do you use the congressional results from past years? Well, in some cases, you know, there were uncontested races in districts or, or extremely weak candidates that lead to, you know, kind of a misestimation of a, of a district's competitiveness. Or uh, you can use how many Democratic and Republican votes there are, but that kind of assumes that there aren't independents who are evaluating candidates based on their individual right. strengths and weaknesses. So in Arizona, uh, back in, in 2010, uh, the commission's chair, <laughs> Colleen Coyle Mathis, was impeached for passing a map that effectively maximized the number of competitive districts in the state and, and gave Democrats a chance to win five of the state's nine seats. Well, you know, one of those seats that was supposedly competitive at the outset of that decade is now a solidly Democratic seat just because the suburbs of Phoenix have become a lot bluer. So the intentions of map makers in the immediate aftermath of the census can be overtaken by trends uh, in the course of the decade to follow. So to sum up, is there a particular reform or technique that you think could could ultimately lead to more competitive districts, less partisan gerrymandering, or less you know less gerrymandering in general? What would you put at the top of that stack of things that that would have a high impact on competitive districts? Well, I, I think in practice, the California style reform holds the most promise as a as a blueprint uh, for other states. And I, in fact, I think you've seen Colorado and Michigan head in that citizen-led commission path. Yeah. Now, there are other commissions out there that have much different approaches, and not all commissions are are designed alike. You know, New Jersey's commission and Virginia's commission uh, are appointed by state legislative leaders. Uh, oftentimes, they have marching orders to protect certain incumbents, and yeah. there's a lot of wheeling and dealing that goes on. It's not exactly removed from politics. And New Jersey, in fact, has produced a number of very gerrymandered maps using a commission. So we have to be careful about the criteria and the source of power uh, for these commissions. I'm actually a fan of algorithmic approaches to districting. Mm. And although a lot of the the algorithms that um, various computer scientists have come up with would make it difficult for election administrators because they, you know, uh, draw lines that cross a lot of county and municipal boundaries and so forth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think there is a way to optimize it in a in a way that uh, this could be a simple algorithmic an AI driven um, function solution. <laughs> that that maybe takes into account some pre existing county or municipal boundaries and where this process could simply be luck of the draw. Um, now. I know that there's a response from a number of people who say, well, how can you how can that possibly be compatible with the Voting Rights Act? I think right. we we tend yeah. to underestimate the number of states where the Voting Rights Act has created overly packed minority districts that have inhibited minority candidates' chances of winning in multiple seats. Uh, the the effect of you know the the current regime of majority minority seats i think has been to confine minority candidates into certain yeah. districts and make surrounding seats you know essentially unwinnable i think that's right you know it certainly would deal in you know, do away with the problem of 
you know, every single legislator lobbying the map drawers to make sure that their home is in the new district where they're, you know, where they're going to live. And we just had uh, David Becker on to explain all of the nuances of the Voting Rights Act. And if they could get around that, I mean, if you could, if you could come up with a way to maybe a solution would be you use an algorithm for the first pass and then go in and adjust where you need to for communities of interest and, uh, and, and, um, you know, to comply with the Voting Rights Act seems like it would be a much better start, but only allow deviance from the AI-driven map for that purpose. Yeah, I, mean, that's, I think that's a reasonable start. I mean, I just think of how much money and, and stress we could save the country from yeah. going to, you know, from what we currently have to something that is more luck of the draw. Okay, so let's talk about the overall representation now, um, out of the weeds and into the sky, I guess. So all this math gets done, all of the dividing gets done with a finite number of seats, 435 for the House. So that's been the case for about a century, but the population has grown around 170% since that 435 seat cap was put in place, according to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 1911, when that 435 number was first set, each member of Congress represented about 200,000 people. And in 2018, the average population of a district was 750,000. James Madison, as we know, actually proposed a formula tying the size of the House to the total population of the United States as the First Amendment to the Constitution. So we're now poised uh, to see a massive swing in the number of constituents per representative this year in states like Rhode Island, like you mentioned, uh, and Montana. Do you think it's time to expand the size of the House and what impact could that have on the balance of power? Yeah, I, I think it's reasonable to consider expanding the House, but it's also a Band-Aid because let's say we went from 435 to 635. <laughs> well, in 20 years, we'd yeah. kind of be back in the same, <laughs> We're gonna same place. Yeah. You know, we passed the threshold beyond which it doesn't make sense for members to knock on doors a long time ago. You've got to raise millions yeah. to run TV ads to win congressional districts these days. And, uh, you know, I don't think even doubling the size of the house would really change that all that much. Um, what it could do is create some opportunities for you know more Republicans to get elected in blue states and more Democrats to get elected in red states. You know, I worry that the overall impact, small d, democratically, from this round of redistricting will be to make blue states even more lopsided in that direction and red states even more lopsided in the other direction, and that of course continues this trend of Americans who are just not exposed to other points of view or don't have to respond to the other side. Just for context, we should I just want to offer these numbers. Rhode Island's going to go from 526,000 constituents per seat to 1.1 million constituents per seat. Uh, Montana is going to go from 989,000 to 540,000 constituents per seat. All right. So Dave, what are the top things that voters should be paying attention to throughout this process? We've talked a bit about, um, you know, redistricting, it, uh, our listeners especially like to get involved at the, at the local level and they, they want to do as much as they possibly can to influence outcomes. What, where's the highest value, you know, piece of activism that they can, uh, that they can get involved in 
given that redistricting is one of those things that tends to happen behind closed doors, whether it's in a commission's closed doors or the legislature's closed doors, and and individuals don't necessarily have access to that process. However, in the litigation, uh, usually every single person who's in a district has standing to sue or can join uh, a lawsuit after the fact. So when people say, I want to get involved, I want to make sure that, that districts are drawn fairly, what recommendations would you give to them? Well, in most states, there are public hearings regarding districts. I know that because there's a shorter window to get this done, given the pandemic, that there may be fewer opportunities than there were 10 years ago. But if you want as a citizen for a certain community to be kept together or certain communities to be in the same district, come armed with maps. And it's easier than ever to draw maps yourself. One of the new features of of this year uh, that makes it different from past cycles is that there's been a real democratization of mapping technology. It used to be that to draw a, a legal official map you needed to buy expensive software that ran it into the five digits. And it was really only the domain of- And of, hardware that could run it. <laughs> right, of political professionals. And this time around, yeah. there are multiple applications that are browser-based that can allow citizens to essentially do the same thing with you know, a, a short tutorial. So take advantage of that. Yeah, there's one that you mentioned on Twitter a while back called Dave's Redistricting App, I think. I haven't checked that out, but but maybe that's a good place for people to start. It is, and I find it very user-friendly. It's also very feature-rich with 2019 census estimates, including estimates for uh, citizen voting age population, which is really essential for drawing districts that are compliant with precedent uh, under the Voting Rights Act. It's got election results for a lot of different uh, races, most cases, the 2016 presidential election. In some cases, they're adding data for 2020. So it gives you a a good partisan baseline of of what you're drawing. And you can also share your maps on a variety of social media. So check it out. Uh, What I'm doing actually is is for cookpolitical.com, I'm drawing a forecast map uh, in some cases, multiple maps for each state to go mm. along with my state-by-state analysis of what's happening. And so subscribers have access to those uh, at cookpolitical.com. Oh, that's terrific. Okay. And we should also note Dave's redistricting app is not you, Dave. It's a different Dave. <laughs> yeah. It's a uh, retired Microsoft engineer in Seattle named Dave Bradley. And I've met him a few times. Great guy. That's super cool. Dave Wasserman, thank you for being here. Before I let you go, where can everybody find you on the internet? Well, I'm at Redistrict on Twitter, and I write for the Cook Political Report. So we've got analysis of every state there. And, you know, just perhaps a final word. I think we're going to be awash in partisan disinformation about redistricting in in the year uh, or two to come. Uh, Although it's not top of mind right now, I think it's going to explode in public consciousness once legislatures start drawing maps this fall. And if you're not a fan of whataboutism, then you probably shouldn't be mm. paying attention to the conversation on Twitter or anywhere else about gerrymandering, because this truly is a topic on which neither side has a moral high ground. We're going to see very creative maps proposed 
in a lot of Republican states, whether it's Florida or North Carolina or Georgia, we're going to see, and Texas, uh, we're going to see uh, some creative Democratic maps in places like Illinois and, and Maryland. The bottom line is both parties are going to gerrymander because they can't. And Congress has failed thus far to step in. The Supreme Court failed to step in. It's up to citizens, and it has been citizens, to, to pass reform initiatives on a state-by-state basis. And if you don't like what's happening, push harder for change for the next time. Good point and well said. Thanks for being here, Dave. Thanks a lot. Thank you to everyone at home or on the go for listening. If you have questions or advice for us, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. If you enjoy the show and you find this work meaningful, you can also help us by rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts and by sharing this episode. And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at politicologypod. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.